I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John. I'm going to read a, a portion of Scripture that a portion of which, a portion of the verse, is well known. In fact, it, uh, it warranted someone to actually write a hymn around the very words that I'm going to read, the very words that Jesus spoke from, from the cross. The text is the 19th chapter of John's Gospel, the words of verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we have come to a point in John's Gospel where we have a statement that has profoundly affected believers throughout the generations, has cascaded into our hymns, into the hymns we sing, into the devotion we give, into our very understanding of the nature and content of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so of necessity we will be tracking, we will be trafficking in very precious, very sacred, very holy things this morning. We pray that we would approach your word with a, a due care and a concern uh, not to impose upon your word what our own thoughts would desire, but that we would be receiving with meekness the implanted word that is able to save our, our souls. So grant us your grace and presence, grant us the help and illumination of the Holy Spirit as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the final part of John's account of our Lord's crucifixion. John's already told us about Jesus carrying his own cross, the titulus or the charges that were placed above the cross or by the cross, expressing the reasons he was being crucified. We looked at the disposition of his garments, the way in which one was uh, chosen by lots, the others were divided, and we saw the disposition of his mother into the hands of John for her care, and also John into the heart of Mary, I would think. I think that it's both uh, Jesus' love for the two of these people and the, the joining together in a, a new relationship of, um, of just gospel love and gospel grace and gospel power. Um, and uh, we see that that flows from the cross too. That flows from our Savior's dying love. And then we looked last week at the thirst that our Lord speaks to, to and how that thirst was, uh, was satisfied, at least to an extent. And then we have the final cry, the loud cry, that comes from the cross and then the death of Jesus expressed in the very words that we read this morning. Uh, the final cry, it is finished. And then the death, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Well, it's to this cry and to the death, as it's described in John's Gospel, that we turn our attention this morning in verse 30. I want to begin with the final cry, and then I want to look at the way in which the death of Jesus is described. The passage says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up 
the Spirit. Now both Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel speak to the issue of a loud cry. But we're not told what that cry was. Matthew 27 and verse 50 reads, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew has two cries. The first cry was, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Then, as Matthew tells the story, at the end is a second cry. Jesus cries out again with a loud voice. Apparently both of those cries were loud cries wasn't just directed to Mary and John. It was one just directed to people nearby. I thirst. It was something that uh, was loud. It was. It's emphasized the volume of our Lord's speech, crying out, "Both my God, my God, why have you abandoned me?" And crying out at the end of his sufferings. Mark just simply tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke, he just speaks about Jesus calling out with a loud voice. But it's interesting, Luke gives us different words that Jesus spoke. Now, I don't think it's necessarily contradictory. I can conceive of our Lord having actually spoken both things. But rather than it is finished being the thing that Luke wants to call our attention to, it's the fact that when all the scriptures tell us that Jesus gave up his spirit or yielded his spirit, that he used a passage from the Old Testament. He used a passage from Psalm 31 that says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And back in Psalm 31, it's not something that the psalmist was doing in death. It was something he was doing in life. At all points and at all times, we should be committing our spirits into the hands of God. But at Jesus' death, as he's giving up his life, as he's dying on the cross, and his body is going to be displaced in a a tomb, he tells us something else is happening with his human spirit. He gives his spirit up to God, and he places his spirit in the hands of God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But John, though we might think, hey, there's lots of differences here between what John says and these other accounts. But you know what's really even more remarkable is how similar they are and how consistent the accounts really are. They all mention sour wine. They all mention the reed or the hyssop bush um, with sour wine ministering to Jesus thirst they all speak of loud cries they all speak of the spirit of Jesus being yielded up or committed to his father's hand or in John uh, his spirit is given up to God but each offers its own distinctive emphasis to the account. And the thing that's so impressive about the way in which these Gospels relate to one another is there's clearly no effort to collude to sound overly similar. You know, when people are looking to pull, pull the wool over your eyes and to tell you a full story, and there's a group of them that want to do that, they're going to get together and say, well, you say this, and we're all going to say it in a way that's perfectly consistent. And you would expect that when real eyewitness testimony is given, or real testimony to the truth and event is given, it's not always told in the same way. Which is why the cross-examiner in trials, he gets to town calling out the inconsistencies. There may be no real inconsistencies, but there always are seeming inconsistencies. 
And that's what's true in real evidence, when real evidence is provided. So I think we have a legitimate account of a real event that took place in history and is seen by eyewitnesses or heard by those that investigated the things that occurred and it's told in a very concise, in a very clear, in a very consistent fashion just with differing points of emphasis that have different reasons in terms of what they want to say, what these writers want to say in the story of the crucifixion that they give. Because again, these people were preachers. These people were taking the materials that were at hand and they're looking to weave it together in a narrative that would be compelling, it would be interesting, it would be um, moving the hearts of people who heard to come to faith. That would be the point of it, is that we want to tell the story of Jesus in such a way as would explain the facts to people in a way they would hear it. And hearing it will come to believe. Now John alone tells us that the loud cry of Jesus at his death, for whatever else he said, it also included these words, it is finished. Now, it is finished in English is three words, right? But the Greek word actually is only one. The Greek word tetelestai, tetelestai, it's one word. And you know, it has a lot of a lot of parts of it that we have English words that correspond to it. One of it is the the telos word group, which can mean the end of something, or the you know uh, a telescope you can see out of the end in the distance. Um, and it is a word that is almost invariably in our English Bibles translated "it is finished," which is remarkable. That so many Bibles agree that it is finished is the, is the translation that ought to be in our Bibles because the word itself, this one word, the telestai, is really capable of a number of different ways of being translated. We could write, it is concluded. It is completed. It is consummated. It is discharged. It is accomplished. It is ended. It is executed. All those would be proper translations of the word. And the fact that it's found in a verbal form in what's called perfect passive could also yield the emphasis that it stands finished, or it stands completed, or it stands accomplished, or it has been finished. Everything is done. But although it's capable of that kind of variety of translations, 90% of the translations in the English language that are out there has it is finished. And there's a couple of Catholic versions that don't like that, and so they say it is accomplished or something like that. Because particularly among Protestants, although it's even wider than Protestants, the church historically has heard these words, explained these words, these words have reverberated throughout, the, throughout Christian history and Christian theology as an expression of what we call the finished work of Christ. Now the finished work of Christ is something that's a biblical teaching. It says, in essence, Jesus died once, once for all. He accomplished redemption, he accomplished what he came to do, and it will never be repeated. There's no need for continued sacrifices to be made. There's no need for anyone else to be crucified. 
there's a a musician I came to listen to a bit of her music this week and she grew up in a church family her father was a Methodist minister and uh, for some reason though this was like back in the 90s I simply missed this woman altogether and uh, this week I first heard some of the things that she's written and some of the music is really remarkable but the first thing I actually heard that attracted my attention was um, something called Crucify Crucify in which her religious upbringing evidently brought a cloud of guilt over her life and a full sense that she could never be good enough. She could never do anything that would really be good enough to be acceptable in the sight of God. And it was really pathetic because she's thinking of herself as the one who has to crucify, be crucified for her own sins and her own transgressions. And that is totally despairing. And I wanted to say it is finished. It is finished. There's no need for anyone else to be crucified. There's no need for anybody else to think I'm the one that needs to suffer. Christ has suffered once, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He's done it once for all. No need for any repetition of this. No need for any other redemptive sufferings to take place. The church is called to suffer, yes, but our suffering is in the pathway of the service to his name. It's part of our conformity to the image of the suffering Christ, but it doesn't provide redemption for anyone. Our suffering does not atone for sin. Jesus' atonement does, complete and full. So to that extent, I say amen. It is finished. Certainly impinges upon that great reality that Christ's work is done. It is over. It is accomplished. It has been finished. Once for all, this unrepeatable act of our Lord Jesus has obtained for us eternal redemption. I have no doubt that the word to Telestai tends in that direction. It's generally supportive of the doctrine of the finished work of Christ. But I don't think if we had all these other statements of the scriptures, if we didn't have all these other statements of the scriptures that support the doctrine, that we would have learned it just from John 19, verse 30. But I don't think that was John's intention, or Jesus' intention, in speaking the words. It could be inferred from what happened at the cross, but I don't think it was the exact point. And to sort of demonstrate that, you just really have to read the passage to learn that. Because look at the passage itself. Go back to 1930. And just look two verses before that. Here we read, after this, Jesus, knowing that tetelestai, knowing that it was finished. That's what it says. That's what it says. I know it's translated differently in English, but it's the same in the Greek. Jesus knowing that it, was, that it is finished. That it has been accomplished. So in verse 28, Jesus knows that it is finished. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't declare it. He doesn't cry out with a loud voice and say it. Until verse 30. And verse 30 tells us that his saying it with a loud voice, had a context to it. That he said it is finished when Jesus had received the sour wine. 
he said, it is finished. When he knew that all things were finished, he said nothing. But when he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I want to point something out to you. I didn't put that in the Bible. That's exactly the context in which the word that is finished is found. Is that right? Is it there? Jesus, knowing that it was finished, didn't say, it is finished. In fact, he said, I thirst. He said, I thirst. Wait a minute. Lord, it is finished. What are you saying, I thirst? You should be saying at this point, it is finished. He doesn't say that. He says, I thirst. That leads me to believe, as I said last week, I thirst is very important to understanding the death of Jesus. Because what you have here is the fountain of living water. The one who said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is you're talking to, he said to the Samaritan woman, you would have asked of me that I would have given you living water. Jesus is the source of life-giving water. He stood up on the great day of the feast and he said, if any man thirst, let him come to me. And out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And this he said, speaking of the Spirit. And it's not out of, out of their belly, it's his belly. He's the one that's the source of this living water. How does the source of living water thirst? How does the one who's able to give living water thirst? And my contention is, he's thirst in a substitutionary manner. He suffers thirst for us because thirst was one of the signs of the curses that were brought upon the covenant people of God for their disobedience. When the people of Israel were unfaithful, God would shut the heavens. There would be no rain. There would be no fruitful seasons. There would be no harvests. That was part of the curses of the covenant. And the path of blessing is said in the scriptures to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That's the blessing. Blessing is Eden. It's the place where the rivers run through it. It's the place where abundant water is to be found. Where curse is found. Where the frown of heaven comes upon people. There's no, there's no water. There's thirst. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his arm, whose heart departs from the Lord. He shall be like a shrub in the desert. We'll not see when good comes. Desert. Drought. No water. Curse. I thirst. Jesus is declaring the reality that he dies, as Paul says, under the curse. You know, Paul brings together in Galatians chapter 3 two passages from the Old Testament. One of them says, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And I'll say, Well, all of us then are under the curse. But then Paul brings up another consideration is that Christ has delivered us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And he quotes a passage from the book of Deuteronomy that says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. One of the reasons Jesus did not allow himself to be executed by means of Jewish stoning is that he had to be hung on a tree. There had to be this curse element that came in to define his death. He dies as a curse. He dies as the curse bearer. 
or to use John's word, he's the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And the angel of death would come upon the, the Egyptian households. It was the one who had the blood of the Lamb upon the doorposts of the houses that the angel of death would pass over. The sins of the Israelites were borne away. Egypt was made the curse for them. They didn't have the curse upon the Jewish homes. They were covered with the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus is that Lamb of God who bears away the curse, bears away the sin, bears away all our guilt-worthiness, everything that would be part of living in a cursed world. Jesus assumes that he might bring in a new world. And he might bring in a new creation. So that if any man is in Christ, behold, a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. What John does is he brackets, it is finished. As the two brackets outside of this matter of the, of the thirst of Jesus, the thirst of Jesus, upon which statement I thirst, we find a jar full of sour wine stood there. Interesting, a jar full of sour wine. You do remember there were six stone jars at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And those six stone jars contained water. And what did Jesus do with the water? He turned it into wine. And he turned it into the best wine that the people had drunk up to that point. And the people said, look, in most weddings, you give the best wine first, and then you give the dregs at last. But this wine is great wine. This wine is superior wine. This wine is new wine. This wine is the best of wine. I know another jar is found. I know I've told you before that the sixth, seventh jar is actually the jar that the woman at the well held. Yes, yes, but the jar makes a reprise here also in chapter 19. And here the jar is, is filled with wine. It's filled with wine. And so there is the picture of the wine of the new covenant, the new wine of the new things Jesus is bringing in, being represented by that which Jesus is now receiving on a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch that would bring the blood of the Passover lamb upon the doorposts of the household members of the people of Israel. I mean, this is rich symbolism, but hey, it's here. And we have... The Passover lamb receiving the curse and saying before he gets the wine, it is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. What's he saying? The curse is over. The curse is ended. The element of the curse that was upon a fallen world because of its rebellion and disobedience to the true and living God. The curse that came upon the world and when God said, cursed be the earth for the man's sake. That curse is now, in essence, removed by our Lord Jesus. I know the ramifications are not fully ended, but the reality is a new creation has come in. I know the old creation is still hanging around. But there still is this new creation that comes through Christ's death and his resurrection. And when Jesus dying on the cross is a curse, now think about it. Me, me, being, he's under the curse means that thirst is what you should expect. Thirst is what I deserve. Not personally, but representatively. 
dying for others, dying in their place. He deserves to experience the curse if he would discharge the curse in its fullness. But he utters the words, I thirst, expressing curses what he is under. And then these people take the sponge of sour wine. They put it on the hyssop branch and they hold it to the lips of Jesus' mouth. Now under the curse, wine would not have gotten that far. There would have been no vineyards. There would have been no wine. The person under the curse would not have the benefit of having their thirst slaked by, by the hyssop branch filled with sour wine. Now we think of sour wine, we think that must have been something disgusting. No, it wasn't disgusting. It was the things that the soldiers used when they were thirsty. It was the things that refreshed them. And this refreshing wine, this wine that Psalm 104 tells us makes glad the heart of man is placed to the lips of the accursed Jesus. And he receives the sour wine. And it's not bitter. He receives the sour wine and he doesn't spit it out. He receives the sour wine. And folks, I think he was refreshed by the sour wine that he received on the hyssop branch. Think what that would have meant to him. The curse is gone. The mission's accomplished. The work I've come into the world to do has been discharged in full. The curse is over. Let the blessings begin. I know I put that in there. I think the sense of it is let the blessings begin. The blessings that come to us through Christ's shed blood. And I was very impressed by the fact that the writer to the hymn that we sang before the worship seems to have at least picked up on one of that as an element of the it is finished story. Because he says, it is finished, oh what pleasure do these precious words afford. Heavenly blessings without measure flow to us. From Christ the Lord, the one who is the source of living water. Living water flows to us through the dying Lord, through the Lord who spoke the words, it is finished. It is finished, it says the curse is over. Let the blessings commence. Let the blessings of the new covenant, let the blessings of the new wine, let the blessings I've come into the world to do come to me now first. And then come to all who come to faith in me. And Jesus received the blessings first. You don't think of the cross at any point as part of receiving blessings. But I rather think that our Lord was invigorated by the sour wine. By the fact that it was good. By the fact that it was part of what he understood from the scriptures. Is that which makes the heart of man glad. Which is God's gift. That gift would not have been extended to him if the curse had remained, if he hadn't discharged the work in full. But he did. He did. That's the point. And he says, mission accomplished. The work has been achieved. The work of redemption has been obtained. The blessings of God now flow freely to all who come to faith in him. Now, I may be wrong that that's the understanding, but you come up with a better answer, okay? 
I mean, it's, it's a little different idea, but look at where it's found. Look at how it's written. Look at the way these relationships of phrases stand to one another. Knowing that all was now finished. He doesn't say it is finished. He says, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. Held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine. He received it. He didn't reject it. He didn't spit it out. He received it and it was good. And he says it's been achieved. It's been accomplished. The curse is over. That's the cry. That's the cry. That's the cry in the context in which the cry is revealed to us. And it's interesting. It's that cry that's really a cry of triumph. It's an invigorated sense. It's been done. It's been achieved. It's been accomplished. It's an expression of the victory. He wins over sin and over death and over the curse at the cross. And it's at that point being invigorated. You might think he's going to hop off the cross. He's going to ascend the throne. And no, that happened that way. He dies. He dies. But the way even his death is expressed is wondrous in and of itself. Because you see, he dies at the point of his strength, not his weakness. He dies at the point of being invigorated, not being hopeless and helpless. He dies declaring a victory, not a defeat. And then it tells us, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Now, this word, he bowed his head, it's interesting. It's used in the context where Jesus said that the birds of the air have their nests. And birds of the air and what were the land animals? Help me out. What's that? The foxes. The foxes have their holes. I'm sorry. Concession to my age. (laughs) I just drew a blank on the foxes, of course. The birds of the air have their nests. The foxes have their holes. But the Son of Man has not a place to bow his head. To bow his head. It's the picture of the Son of Man looking for a place to lay his head down and rest in sleep. Jesus on the cross, in the midst of these sufferings, having attained a victory, having triumphed in, his, in the work of the cross, cries out in victory, and then bows his head down as if he would go to sleep. A pleasant, restful sleep. It's not out of weakness. It's out of a sense the work is done. The work has been achieved. What do you do after a hard day's work? You go to bed. You rest your head. You go to sleep. And Jesus bows his head as if he were going off into a pleasant rest after accomplishing this great work of the redemption of his people. But then it says he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. 
And again, here too, the language is most interesting. It's the same language that we read all really through the, the Gospel of John that expresses how Judas betrayed him. The word really means handed him over. Judas betrayed Jesus. He handed him over. And then he was handed over to the soldiers. And then he was handed over to the priests. And then he was handed over to the pilot. Now Jesus is doing the handing over. And it's doing, he's doing it actively. This is not a passive verb. This is an active verb. This is not just being overtaken by death. That the natural factors of crucifixion and infection and dehydration and all the other factors that would bear upon the normal human body was finally taking its toll. Crucifixion was a lengthy process. It could take days. That's why they came to later on to seek to break the, the legs of the prisoners of the crucified ones because the Passover, the day of preparation had come and they didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross for the, for the high Sabbath for the Sabbath that took place in the Passover season it was unusual that Jesus should have died it's not the result of natural factors it's the, nat- it's, it's, it's the result of a supernatural voluntary act on the part of the Son of God. He explains it in chapter 10 of John's Gospel when he calls himself the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, I give up my life willingly. He says, no man takes it from me. No man could have killed the Son of God. No cross could have killed the Son of God. Again, you're not only talking about the one who's the source of living water, you're talking about the one who's the author of life. Death could not have overtaken the Lord of life if he had not given it up willingly. As an act of his own volition. As an act of his own will. He gave up his life. But he gave up his life in a way that recognized that there's more to man than just the body. Just the body that dies upon the cross. Man is a creature made up of two component elements. Now they always work together, they're always to be found together, it's weird and, and unnatural that they ever should be separated, but the fact is that death does bring about a separation of what was joined together which was the soul and the body of the man that God made. Now, In one sense, the calling of Adam a living soul in the book of Genesis is common to the other creatures. All the creatures were living souls. All of the creatures were animate life. They all lived. That's why she had respect for animals and not the, you know, they're, they're, they're different than unliving beings. They're different than stones and, and, uh, and, uh, and sticks. They're, they're living beings. But man has a special component part to his livingness. God made of the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air living creatures that he spoke into existence with a word saying, let the earth bring forth. Let the earth bring forth these creatures. Man was not so. At least from the time of Adam on, man's component parts have a part that is physical, material. 
He formed the man dust from the ground. We have from dust you are, from dust you came to dust you will return. There is that physical, material element of human beings, but there's another element of the human being. It's what God gave to Adam when he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There's a component part of human life that comes directly from God its maker. That makes us different from the animals. That gives us reason and and creativity and imagination and memory and uh, all manner of things. That it's not just the result of a larger brain, which we do possess, by the way, but it's a result of the fact that an aspect of our humanity comes from God and that aspect of our humanity that comes from God returns to God at death. But in Ecclesiastes tells us that this is true. The body goes to the dust, the spirit returns to the God who made it. And why do I say all this? Well, because Jesus in his humanity was going to have his body entombed. The body was going to be taken down from the cross. It was to be given to Joseph of Arimathea to put in a new tomb. Did Jesus go out of existence in terms of his soul, in terms of his mind, in terms of his emotions, in terms of his understanding, in terms of his humanity? Now, there's a sense in which we know his deity always persisted, could never cease to be, but his, his deity now joined with this humanity and in incarnation. Did that humanity go out of existence until Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, Jesus answers the question, no, no. He's turning over his spirit, that which came from God, to give it back to God. He was going back to God, even in terms of his humanity, going to the Father's house of many mansions, going to prepare a place for his people, going into the presence of the God of heaven. He gave up his spirit to go to God. I think that's important to understand. You know, people going around the churches today saying that man is only a body. Once the body's dead, everything's dead. Till the resurrection. Maybe the resurrection will cause us to come back to existence. But from death to resurrection, we don't really have much of an existence at all. Man is so tied to his brain that once brain functions cease, humanity ceases, personality ceases, existence ceases, there's no persistence beyond physical life. And I'll simply say to you, that's just not biblical. That's just not true. Part of our humanity has the breath of divine life in it. And that aspect of our humanity that has the breath of divine life in it returns to its author. And returns to its author where our humanity and our identity and our sense of who and what we are does not cease to exist. It persists. It continues. Even beyond death. Resurrection will unite us to that body, at least to a glorified body, to a spiritual body, a body described in very different ways. That's another story we'll get to when we see the resurrection, how the body may change with reference to resurrection life. But the point is, between death and resurrection, there still is existence. There still is existence. When we say that our loved ones went to be with Jesus, we're not just telling a tale. It's not just we're engaging in some wishful thinking. We're not just making some sort of a projection. We love them so much, we hate to think they'll ever go, but they're never really nowhere ever to be found except in our own hearts. It's always good to keep your loved ones in your heart, but it's also good to know that they are in the presence of Jesus. 
that to be absent from the body exists. There is such a condition and state of things. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of God. That's part of Christian truth that we must never relinquish. This is the way John describes the death of Jesus. He bowed his head as if to go to sleep and freely, willingly gave up his spirit, rendered his spirit back to God, back to the God who gave it. I want to leave you with two points as we conclude this morning. And the two points are simply this. I want us to leave this morning with the thoughts redolent in our minds and hearts of a Jesus who triumphs for us and a Jesus who teaches us to die. First of all, the Jesus who triumphs for us. What could be less triumphant than dying? And yet in the case of the Lord of life, he dies that we might live. He is cursed that the curse might be removed and that blessings might come to us in fullness. I sometimes think Christians live in this world as if the curse was still the main reality of life. And I would simply say to you this morning, no curse remains for the people of God. I know we live in a world that's still under the curse, has not been fully removed, the creation labors and travail, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. I know Paul says that in Romans 8. I know there is something of the overlapping of the ages, the theologians call it, where the new creation is present, where the old creation is still existing in some sense. But if we are those who have come to faith in Jesus, there is no curse remaining. He absorbed the curse in full. And where cursing is obliterated, you know what remains? Blessing. Blessing. There's only two options. You're either blessed or you're cursed. And what Jesus said, the judgment they will bring, will say to those on his right hand, Come, what ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Who are the redeemed? They are the ones blessed of God. They are the ones blessed of God. He'll say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed. Depart from me, ye cursed. Those are the only two places to be. Come, depart. Blessed, cursed. And if you believe in Jesus, you know what God's word to you is? is come. It's never depart. It's always come. One of the beautiful images that the ancients would refer to when they spoke of the death of Jesus and the manner of his death by crucifixion was that crucifixion caused the arms of the crucified to be extended. And the thought was that the arms of Jesus was extended in blessing. The arms of Jesus upon the cross was extended for the salvation of the world to receive all who would come to God through faith in him with an open-hearted, open-armed reception. It's a nice thought. But you know, it's a thought that also Jesus did seem to pick up on 
not so much by the fact of his crucifixion, but that Luke tells us before he ascended to the Father, he blessed them. He blessed them. His hands were lifted in blessing. If all you see as you live life in God's world is the fact of a curse that's upon the earth, and how miserable and awful and terrible and trying and difficult, oh man, the world really stinks. I'm not going to argue that with you, but I'm going to argue this with you. That is not all you are to see. I don't deny it's there. But if that's all you see, you do not see all that's to be seen. In the midst of a world that's under the curse, God still reaches out His hands in blessing and says, Come, come, receive from my heart of goodness, my heart of goodwill, my heart of love, all the blessings I have for all who come to me in faith. See you, Jesus, who took the curse for us, and having taken the curse, simply lifts up his hands in blessing. There's nothing left but blessing for the people of God. And then Jesus teaches us to die. Jesus teaches us to die. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think Woody Allen said, yeah, he's not bothered about death, he just didn't want to be there when it happened. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to be there when it happens. But we sing a hymn that says, Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death, your sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the power of death to sever. Another line of that hymn says, Jesus lives and death is now but my entrance into glory. As awesome as death is, this should be in the hearts of God's people. No question of what remains on the other side. Not even death, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. So, you know, you may lose the knowledge of whether these draft picks of the Giants are going to be great stars in the future. You may not live to see that. You may not live to see who wins the next presidential election. You may not live to see who's going to replace Tucker Carlson on Fox News. I'm sorry. Getting into too much contemporary news. But in a real sense, folks, if we've really keyed into what we're talking about this morning, none of that matters. I mean, it has its own importance. Very, very small. But not big. Not big. But death is not loss. That's the thing we fear. We're going to lose. We're going to lose the knowledge of the next winner of the World Series or who's going to win Wimbledon this year. Or who, uh, yeah, okay. You're not, you're not going to get that information probably in glory. Or maybe, I don't know. I don't know. But the point is, Death is not lost to the Christian. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, 
And to die is gain, not loss. It's gain. It's to gain more of Jesus, more of his presence. Death, blessed, blessed be God, because of Jesus, is not the final word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in the scriptures this morning. Lord, I pray if anything that I've said this morning is overly speculative, you'd expunge it from our thoughts. It would be no determining part of our faith, but insofar as what's been said is consistent with what we do see in scripture, we pray that we would take joy and comfort and consolation and encouragement from the things we've seen in the word of God this morning. We ask you to be pleased to bless your people, to dismiss us with your presence going with us. You would strengthen us for all that is before us in the days and hours to come. And we pray for those who are staying as we have a meal together. You would bless us in our conversation and in our fellowship. That you'd bless us, those who would stay in the afternoon service as well. We ask, Lord, we would go with your presence and with your peace as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.